prayer. Heavenly Father, what a gift it is to have a day that's a vacation day once a week, which is your day on Sundays. And we ask that it would be that for us today, a day of rest, a day of naps, a day of you speaking to us through your word, the grace that is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, come and do that good work in us and revive our hearts as you brought revival and awakening in the 1500s. Do it again, Lord. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The scene is a tiny village a few miles outside of Paris, France, as you see smoke from the cooking fire outside a little hut. Inside is Colette Bassett. She's 31, but she looks 70. Her gray hair is lanky and filthy. She has three teeth. Her skin is dark from the smoke of a thousand cooking fires, and the baggy gown she wears is dirty and torn. Tugging at her hem is little Michelle, the youngest of Colette's eight children, who is now two. Michelle is barefoot, wearing nothing but a woolen smock, and his arms and legs are covered with open sores. Five of Colette's eight children have died in infancy, too undernourished and feeble to withstand childhood disease. Not only now, only Marcus, who's nine, and Genevieve, his older sister, five, are left with Michelle. Death and disease have stalked Colette's life and that of her now small family. Her husband, Pierre, is in the field, wearily working in the fields. The sun is low now, and he can hear the bells of the church as they chime. Pierre straightens himself up, makes the sign of the cross, wraps up the day's work, and trudges home. The supper that awaits him is the same evening meal that Colette has prepared a thousand times because that's all they can afford, a bowl of coarse gruel. No wonder Pierre can scarcely muster the energy to limp to the field in the morning. His hungry body is used up at 35, and his daily bread barely keeps him alive. And so on Sundays, the Bassettes trudge their way to the edge, the outer rim of Paris, past the timbered inns and shops to the parish church of saint Etienne du mont Here is their weekly doorway into another world where they come to watch the miracle that brings the very body and blood of Jesus down upon the altar. The presence of God in this parish church fills Colette and Pierre with great awe and fear, but little comfort. The paintings on the walls of the church are garish. They don't understand the service, for the service is in Latin. Only the students at the university can understand it. They think to themselves, if God is so powerful and mighty, and he's able to heal crippled human bodies and restore diseased limbs to health, it's not clear to Pierre and Colette that this God regards them with any attitude other than scorn 
Those paintings on the walls depict the last judgment. Just where ravenous demons are dragging everybody down to hell. Peasants, kings, monks, warlords. No one escapes hell, at least in these paintings. Evidently, the human race is absolutely rotten without a single exception. Mind you, Father Marcel, the parish priest, preaches sermons that offer Pierre and Colette a tiny loophole. If you do your very best to live a godly life, says Father Marcel, then God will pour grace into your soul when you hear the Mass. And grace will help you to do still more good works and build up the treasury of merit. Then on your dying day, if you're good enough, God may lift you off the hook for a few million years in purgatory. So what does doing your very best mean? Well, Father Marcel is very specific about that. If you ask him, God wants you to do good works like burning candles at the altar of St. Etienne's. Buying an indulgence that will let you, let you off a few hundred years of purgatory. Or perhaps if you really want to take out some good fire insurance, you take a pilgrimage to Rome. That'll help a lot. Pierre walks away shaking his head. He can't put together two copper coins to put into the alms box, much less afford a single wax candle, which was expensive. It sounds to him as though heaven is for the rich and hell is for the poor. So Sunday after Sunday, Pierre and Greta and the children trudge home after Mass, depressed, hopeless, facing another week of labor, hunger, and pain. But 257 miles away, in the beautiful Swiss town of Basel sits a young French minister huddled in a second-level half-timbered home in this beautiful clean streets town. John Calvin is pouring over his new work, which he calls modestly the Institutes of Religion. <laughs> Modest work. <laughs> okay? Just to give you an idea. Took him years to get these 80 chapters. The goal of this work was to clearly articulate the Christian faith for the French speaking people. He had a love for his people. A faith that stresses that we are right with God by virtue of our trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And from that great gift that's offered to us, therefore we live. Not perfect lives, but sanctified lives. It could be translated, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. That's you. That's me. That's what we believe. But it doesn't stop there, right? We do good works because of all that Christ has done. Calvin was born in 1509 in Noyon, France. His father was a lawyer and got John the best education. And so by the mid-1520s, John was a fine scholar. He spoke proficient Latin, excelled at philosophy, and qualified to take up intensive study in theology at the University of Paris. But then his father changed his mind. No son of mine's going to be a priest. He's going to be a lawyer. So he went to law school at the University of Orléans, 
He acquiesced, honored his father's wish, and he attained distinction in a subject that he could care less about. During those years, he dipped into Renaissance humanism. He learned Greek, and he read widely the classics, and he added Plato to what he already knew about the philosophy of Aristotle. At the age of 22, he published a commentary on the philosopher Seneca. But all of a sudden, he came across the teachings of this German monk named Martin Luther, who he discovered, not as the church was teaching at that time, but what the Bible was saying, that those who by faith are righteous shall live. And when he read those, you know, his own account of his awakening is, is rather reticent. He writes, God tamed to teachableness a mind too stubborn for its years. For I was strongly devoted to the superstitions of the papacy that nothing less could draw me from such depths of mire. And so this mere taste of true godliness that I received set me on fire with such a desire to progress that I pursued the rest of my studies more coolly, although I did not give them up altogether. At the same time, his brother, his sister, two friends of his, all came to its faith at the same time in the biblical understanding of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. But in heavily Roman Catholic France, it was against the law. So they had to flee to the free city of Strasbourg. It was the summer of 1536 when Calvin had recently converted to the evangelical faith. And he had just per, uh, published, I mean, think about this. He just had published the, the Institutes just a few months later, which articulated the Protestant views. And therefore, because he published that work, he was a wanted man. Well, the party, uh, eventually, they took a trip to Geneva and put him up there. And word quickly passed to a local church leader named William Farrell that the author of the Institutes was in town. So Farrell was ecstatic and he was desperate for help as he strove to create a Protestant church in Geneva. He rushed to the inn and pleaded with Calvin to stay arguing it was God's will that John Calvin stay in the city. Calvin said he was only staying one night. You know, he was just passing through. Besides, he's a scholar, not a pastor. Pharrell, baffled and frustrated, swore an oath, asking God to curse him until he stays. Calvin was a man of tender conscience who later reflected upon that moment and said, I felt as if God from heaven had laid his mighty hand upon me to stop me in my course, and I was so terror-stricken that I did not continue my journey. So Calvin settled in Geneva at Pharrell's bidding. He was there 18 months later before the city officials banned him and Pharrell from Geneva for disagreeing with the city council. So they went back to Strasbourg where he pastored for three years, a church there in Strasbourg, where he met the beautiful Edelette de Bure, the widow of a Baptist, who brought with her two children. 
And then in 1541, that same city council who had banned him had come to realize Calvin was right and invited him back to Geneva, Switzerland. Where during that time he was there, he finished the eventual 80 chapters of the Institutes. And he had become close friends with leading reformers like uh, Philip Melanchthon, Martin Bucer, who was good friends of Thomas Cranmer, the English reformer. And so but he was asked to come back. So he spent the rest of his life there establishing not only a, a healthy church community, but a healthy seminary, sending missionaries back into France, and establishing a culture in Geneva where Christ rules over all of life. So why does this matter to us? What's his legacy for us that we can learn from? Well, first, I think it's important to look at his church organization. Not that we agree with it, but it's pretty impressive what they did. You can't, you can't deny that. Calvin clearly articulated what we now know as the regulative principle, that the scriptures tell us how we ought to organize our lives and our church, and therefore we don't depart from it if it, doesn't, it isn't explicitly stated. Hold that thought, okay? Just hold that. From that, he's taught that there are four ministries, four orders of ministry. There are doctors or professors, teachers. There are pastors, elders, and deacons. And so in Calvin's Geneva, pastors conducted services, preached, administered the sacraments, and cared for the spiritual welfare of the parishioners. In each of the three parish churches that were formed there, two Sunday services, there was a catechism class offered every Sunday, teaching people the faith. Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, a service was held initially, and then services were held every day, Monday through Friday. Listen to this. Calvin saw the abuses of communion, therefore we were only going to have communion four times a year. Eh, wrong. But uh, I understand why he did that. Uh, my, my Presbyterian church in Southern Maryland celebrated communion four times a year. I said, can't we celebrate it more? <laughs> the doctors, the professors lectured in Latin on the Old and New Testament, usually on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And the whole community was invited. There was not this order of Christianity. Everybody was invited. Mostly who attended were schoolboys and ministers, but all could attend. And in every district, elders kept an eye on the spiritual care of the congregation. For example, if they saw Mr. So-and-so had a drinking problem, or if Mr. X was abusing his wife and family, or that Mr. Y and Mrs. Z were just a little too close for comfort, um, they were admonished with great brotherly love if the behavior didn't cease it was reported to the consistory which is today's world the presbyterian session the church's governing body which would summon the offender and ask them to repent excommunication was always the last resort and it would remain in force until the offender repented finally Social welfare of Geneva was in charge of the deacons of the churches. The deacons were the hospital management board. They were the social security agency. 
They were the almshouse supervisors. They were so effective, there were no homeless in Geneva. Think about that. A major city, nobody's on the streets. It worked so well for so many years that when John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, visited Geneva, he wrote a friend that the city is the most perfect school of Christ that ever was on the earth since the days of the apostles. Calvin, for his part, preached twice every Sunday and every day, Monday through Friday, on alternate weeks. He lectured at the Old Testament professor three times a week. He took his place regular, regularly on the consistory that took place every Thursday. And he was either on a committee or incessantly being asked for advice on matters relating to the deacons. It was an amazing awakening in Geneva. When Calvin arrived, Geneva was the most dangerous city in Europe. On the day of his death, it was the safest. Okay, so that's his, that's his organization, which is pretty impressive. What was his message? Well, his message was faith in Jesus Christ alone with an emphasis on sanctification. Calvin's focus in Geneva was you're never justified except that you automatically begin to be sanctified. Sanctification, that I doctrine which says we're set apart for God's glory as we grow in Christ together as God's people. The righteousness of God will never be put upon you without it being developed within you. If it's not developed within you, then you haven't really received it upon you. That, that's the emphasis on much of Calvin's writing. That's the reasons why Paul could look at Galatians 2, you know, those of you who are familiar with that, where Paul's old racist sensibilities begin to come back. He's not eating with the Gentile Christians at all in Galatians. So Paul arrives and sees Peter not eating with the, the, the Gentiles. Paul doesn't say, Peter, you broke the no racism rule. Even though there is no racism rule. It's just Christians shouldn't be racist, right? We shouldn't be. What he says is, Peter, you say you're justified by faith, not by works. You say you're a sinner saved by grace. How can you be superior to anybody else? You say you have the righteousness of Christ on you, but you're not living in that righteousness. Therefore, it's not upon you if it's not beginning to develop within you. If you're loved, then you're called. You're attracted to the holiness of God. You want it. You long for it. I want to look like the one who did this for me. That was Calvin's thrust. That was his message. That's relevant for our lives, isn't it? That we want our neighbors, where we live, work, and play, to see Jesus. It's not something we hold on to ourselves. And like Rosaria Butterfield says, we invite people into the mess of our lives. I know your house has dust. Invite them over. It's just a pot of spaghetti. Invite them. Okay? Same thing at work, go out to lunch, whatever it is. It's not about getting our act together in order to be. No. We just 
walk with Christ, invite people to walk with us. The third thing that Calvin stressed is that God is in control. That's a good word for us all. When you read the Institutes, it begins with grace and it ends with grace. But you, yes, you will see what he's known for, the emphasis on the sovereignty of God, even in salvation. But that's really a secondary emphasis in the Institutes and in his teaching. Oh, he believes it. That's why people who believe the way he believes in salvation, they're called Calvinists, chosen of God. But at the same time, it's about all of discipleship and growth in Christ, all for the glory of God. It was only after Calvin's death that his followers, I think, took it a little further than Calvin did, quite frankly. He also believed that God was in control of all society. He was in no way the ruler or dictator of Geneva as he is portrayed. He was appointed by the city council. He was paid by them, and they could dismiss him at any time, and he was okay with that. He was a foreigner in Geneva. He never became, until later in life, a Swiss citizen. He was a moral authority stemming from the belief that he was ambassador for Christ, God making his appeal through him to the city of Geneva. As such, he was involved in much that went on in Geneva, from the city's constitution to its infrastructure. Can you imagine? But he was flawed, very much so. His role in the infamous execution of Michael Servetus in 1553 was not an official one, but Servetus had fled to Geneva to escape the Roman Catholic authorities. Servetus was proclaimed a heretic. He was teaching that he had denied the Trinity, a blasphemy that merited death in the 1500s all over Europe. And Geneva authorities didn't have patience with heresy even more than the Roman Catholics. And with Calvin's approval, they put Servetus to death by the stake. But ministry was not a cakewalk for him. He drove himself beyond his body's limits. As he aged, he couldn't walk any longer, so they had to carry him to the church. When he couldn't get outside during the winter, they brought the classroom to his room. To those who would urge him to rest, he asked them, What, would you have the Lord find me idle when he comes? His afflictions were intensified by the opposition that he felt all the time his whole 30-odd years in Geneva. It was not uncommon for some outsider to come into the church and start coughing in the middle of his sermon. People tried to drown his voice by gunfire outside, and men would set their dogs on him as he walked to church. Thank you for not doing that. <laughs> there were anonymous threats to his life constantly. And like, even kind of like Luther, he died bitter. He did. He, he was too unsympathetic. He showed little understanding, little kindness, and little humor. And he just kind of wore out in 1564. But his influence did not wear out. 
because outside the church, his ideas have been credited for and in some circles blamed for the rise of capitalism, individuals, individualism, and democracy. In England, as Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, Thomas Cranmer were burned at the stake, those bastions of faith in England, a lot of English left. Where do you think they fled to? Geneva. And for five years, they sat under Calvin's ministry and were greatly influenced by it. So they came back, and a good half of them were just kind of glad to be home and settle back into the Anglican church, which is what we call the normative principle. Richard Hooker was uh, Elizabeth I's theologian. He articulated this in, it's really hard to read, friends. It's in Middle English, but it's called The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. Amen, Scott? Yeah. Uh, it's like drinking sand. But, <laughs> but, he articulated this because people would come back from Geneva and say, you ought not to wear cassocks and surpluses because it's not in the Bible. And we say, uh, yeah, it's not in the Bible, so we can wear them. Because they're symbolic of the imputed righteousness of Christ that I'm wearing. The black cassock is symbolic of growing in Christ, some training that we've received theologically. And that was the arguments that were going on. There shouldn't be candles on the altar. It's not in the Bible. Well, that doesn't mean God forbids them. We're not worshiping them. We're worshiping Jesus. You see what I'm saying? That was the banter that was going around. And so those that came back from Geneva who disagreed with the normative principle of the Church of England at the time became what we know as the Puritans, the English Puritans. They're friends, you know, many of them. At the same time, there's many who stayed in the Church of England and were greatly influenced by Calvin's organization. How can we organize bishops, priests, and deacons in a similar way to be a blessing to our culture? How can we borrow from his expository preaching, his small group study and discipleship, and all service to the community? He was a huge influence on George Whitfield, the great evangelist. Huge influence on J.C. Ryle. John Stott, J.I. Packer. He's a friend, dear friends, because those who are righteous by faith shall live. That's you. That's me. It is said of John Calvin that few Christian leaders have suffered quite so much misunderstanding. He's often been dismissed as a theologian without humanity. In fact, the very reverse is much nearer to the truth. He was a man of deep and lasting affection, passionately concerned for the cause of Christ in the world, a man who burned himself out for the gospel. Don't burn out, okay? I, I forbid you, all right? But let's walk as people who are righteous by faith. That was his focus, that it's not just that we're justified in order, you know, to, to say, yay, happy me, I'm going to heaven. Yeah, that's true. But what did Jesus say in the gospel reading? The kingdom of heaven is like. 
Let's be kingdom people. And as we are, may we see the results that Geneva saw. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Reformation Sunday each and every year as we can look at someone of the heritage that stood for you. Equipped people who went back to France and were immediately killed for the same things that we believe. Lord, we come to you. We thank you that we live in a culture where we're not killed for this. We pray we would use the freedoms that we have for your glory. Loving you, loving one another, and loving our neighbors in, in a contagious way. And that, Lord, we would see a, a renewal within us. Revive us, O oh Lord. And may we cling to that as you revive us. We would see revival through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.